Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 27th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Maybe it's never struck you as odd. But have you ever stopped to wonder how the world's top athletes keep breaking world records? Yeah, we're talking about the fastest and strongest people in the world. But they only seem to be getting faster and stronger. In fact, in the past 100 years of the Olympic Games, we've gotten steadily better every decade. Which begs the question, how? This week, we look into a couple of the factors that might be influencing Olympic gold medal results. And we ask the question, is there a limit? to how good we can get. I'm at Chelsea Piers on the Hudson River in New York City, where a high school women's basketball team is practicing. Some of these girls might go on to be the next generation of American superstar athletes. And if they do, is there a limit to how good, how fast, and how strong they can get? That's the question Columbia University professor Joe Patterson's been asking himself for a while. Patterson actually teaches astrophysics at Columbia, but his knack for crunching numbers has helped to map some pretty interesting trends in human athletic performance. I've become particularly interested in the sports where you can evaluate performance very simply because there's a number, like a race, for example. The time, how long it takes to get to the finish line, or, or how far you can throw the shot, how fast you can swim. Those are particularly interesting to me because you can actually compare people across generations and find out who's better. Patterson mapped 100 years of gold medal Olympic results. He looked at a handful of sports where distance or time determined the outcome and also compared men and women. What Patterson expected to see was a plateau in performance after about 1930. He hypothesized that because a lot of our major sports advances, like the invention of a good running shoe, were rapidly happening during that period, after the 1930s it would be down to good old human ability. But instead of a plateau, what he actually saw was the opposite. The most surprising thing I found was that the gold medal times and distances just keep getting better and better. And not only that, they keep getting better and better at about the same rate. For example, I found that in in all the races, basically 1.3% per decade was the magic number. The men's records improved by 1.3%. Per decade. The women's records improved by 1.3% per decade. So if you graph them, you got these parallel straight lines. It just looked like that's the rate at which humans are improving their speed. Why are they improving their speed? Well, that's a different story entirely and not a story that I know the answer to. Patterson isn't alone. Nobody I talked to seemed willing to peg our steady improvements on a single factor. Rather, all of them pointed to a combination of factors all influencing the athlete's performance. These all seem to be wrapped up in advancements in technology, technique, and of course, ubiquitous drugs. One of the most staggering improvements in medal times Patterson found was in swimming. Instead of the 1.5% per decade rate he noted in running and jumping events, Gold medal swimmers appear to be improving by a staggering 4.3% per decade. I decided to use swimming as an example of what technology and technique can do to modern-day sport. 
Meet Gennadius Sokolovas, a sports scientist who's been working with Olympic-level swimmers and coaches for over 30 years. He analyzes their technique and strength to create specialized training schedules and has worked with athletes like Michael Phelps and Dana Torres. A lot more is known about swimming technique and strength than ever was, says Sokolovas, which is no doubt contributing to faster swimmers. Sokolovas has invented a technology to measure the efficiency of swimmers. This, he says, has dramatically changed the sport. He calls it the swim power test. I call it swim power, and the reason swim power because power is when you multiply velocity and force, you will get power, because we're measuring different components of the power, velocity and force at the same time. So how does it work? What does it look like, this device? Basically, it's like the box, the device itself, it stays on the deck of the pool. There is the fishing line which connects to the swimmer, to the belt that swimmer wears, and swimmer swims away from this device. And when when you're swimming away, the fishing line is on the reel, and the reel rotates, and encoder converts the rotation to the distance that athlete is swimming. We're using software which calculates the velocity based on the distance and time. And then we also have a force gauge inside which measures the force, how much force you're using to pull this reel. So you developed basically a technology to measure how fast and how powerful a swimmer is at any given time in the water. Correct. And that's what we are doing instantaneously, 60 times per second. So at any point of the stroke, you're entering your arm in the water, you just begin your stroke, you're in the middle, you're at the end, you're breathing at this time, so we can tell what force and velocity athlete is swimming at. Okay. And at an exact, like at a very precise moment in her stroke. Exactly, yeah. So before um, having this information, we are learning so much now about swimming technique. And in fact, in the last one and a half year or so, when I'm using this device that I developed, so I learned probably myself about swimming technique more than I learned 20 years before. And I'm a stupid guy. I, <laughs> I worked in swimming already for 30 years and doing studies, everything. And in only one and a half year, I learned more than 20 years before. You can imagine how, how powerful this tool is. But really, I couldn't help thinking, can Olympic medalists really get that much better? I mean, really. The answer, says Sokolovis, is absolutely. Nobody swims the same swimming technique. Everybody is different. And everybody has their individual mis- mistakes. However, there are some typical mistakes that swimmers are doing, especially sub-elite level swimmers who are not very experienced swimmers. So once we're testing swimmer, uh, we can see what part of the stroke is the weakest for them, okay? Because we know what that if by testing instantaneously, I mean, by measuring the force in the last instantaneously, we can tell, uh, let's say, that this part of the stroke or left arm is weaker than right arm. And then we can design the swimming sets to improve the different drills to improve the swimming technique. And like example, in Torres, so back in uh, like more than a year ago when she returned back from retirement for the second time and she broke American record with, uh, with pretty good time, she decided to come to Colorado Springs and to be tested. Uh, she came over here with her coach. She told that my, my swimming technique is perfect. Every coach told that it's perfect and probably I don't need to improve anything. I told Dara, Nobody swims perfect technique. Even fishes can improve swim and swim faster. So, and she was laughing, and then I tested her technique, and I pointed plenty of things to improve, probably about 10 different things to improve. Wow. And initially she was even upset. Oh, I'm Olympic champion. I won so many medals. I'm American record holder. And you are telling me that I have, I'm doing so many mistakes in swimming technique. 
I told Dara, you should be happy because it shows how much potential you have to swim faster. And then she understood, oh, that's right. Hmm. So and then she was happy that there are so many things that she can work and still continue to improve in her performances. Until recently, Sokolovis worked for USA Swimming, the national governing body for the sport. He now runs his own consulting business, where he uses the swim power test to help athletes of all levels. In addition, his test is telling him some interesting things about the other all-important swim technology, the suit. Something that 50 years ago didn't really matter, but since 1992, Speedo alone has released six increasingly more streamlined editions of the full-body fast suit, including Michael Phelps' famous laser. So what we are doing now, we are serving athletes around the world and using the same technology that I developed and actually even better technology because we are not staying on on the same spot. And now with our devices that we have, we can measure even very small differences between various swimsuits. For example, we are talking about technology, about swimsuits, and there should be some somewhere probably some kind of rules, okay, because suits eventually may overtake all athletes' performances, and we don't want to suits be unregulated and go, let's say, any suit you can use, any suit you want, improve your buoyancy, and you will be almost flying above the water with the suit eventually. So we want to keep suits under some rules, and with this technology that we develop now, we can test even very small differences between various suits. For example, I can test athlete and tell that at this suit, with this suit, he will use less force to reach the same velocity than with other suit. Most likely, this suit works for you better than other suit. Or I can tell differences between strokes, and I can tell you to athlete, individual athlete also, if you want to swim fast in the breaststroke, you need to use different swimsuit because different swimsuit will is better for breaststroke than for freestyle for you because there are a variety of different suits. There are jammers, there are legs, there is full body swimsuit with sleeves, without sleeves, also different brands of the suits, and every suit is slightly different. And once we see winner at the Olympic Games uh, winning by 100 of the second, like Michael Phelps uh, on 100 uh, fly over Milorad Kavik from Serbia, that makes big difference. Back at Chelsea Piers, I'm watching young swimmers practice lanes. The rules of swimming are internationally governed by the Fédération Internationale de Natation, or FINA, and a lot can change in 100 years. Olympic pools are required to be at least 2 metres deep at all points. A deeper pool is known to reduce drag on the swimmer. The Beijing Olympic pool was actually 3 metres deep, which some people argue made 2008's swimmers faster. And interestingly enough, the pool's Australian designers had proposed some really major design alterations that would have dramatically changed the world of swimming. One was to add porous end walls to the pool. These would have essentially soaked up nasty swimmer-created waves like sponges. Chinese officials didn't want to carry the extra cost for the 2008 Olympics, but who's to say we won't see the porous speed-enhancing walls in London in 2012? Okay, let's move on to speed enhancers of a different sort. One thing modern-day sport has that pre-war Olympics never did is doping. Gary Wadler is the chairman of the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA's, Prohibited List and Methods Subcommittee. 
I asked him exactly what doping means. Morphed over the years what the definition is. Now there's a legal definition under the World Anti-Doping Agency. Basically, uh, having a prohibited substance in your body or using an Ill- illegal or prohibited method. Okay, so there's almost two components to doping in that there's also the method in addition to the drug. Uh, we, we actually break it down prohibited. The name of the committee I actually chair is the Prohibited List and Methods Committee. So is it possible to have an okay drug with a prohibited method or vice versa? Well, the methods are things like blood doping, methods to subvert testing, like putting catheters into your bladder, substituting urines. There are hundreds of drugs on the water prohibited list, and they're categorized under a couple of subheadings, like anabolic steroids, masking agents, or stimulants, to name a few. Each drug has its own rules. Some, like marijuana, are permitted only when the athlete is not in competition. Others, like alcohol, are also prohibited during competition, but only for certain sports, like karate or archery. Anabolic steroids, however, aren't permitted within two years of competition at all. Every year, the list changes and grows and is subject to intense review by a process of more than 1,200 experts. But essentially, it comes down to WADA's three criteria, performance enhancement, risk to health, and a violation of the spirit of sport. If a drug meets two out of the three criteria, it's usually on the list. What complicates things, says Wadler, is basic medicine. You gotta remember that drugs, these are some of the best inventions of mankind to help patients. That's what I do for a living. And the drugs that are abused by athletes are the very same drugs which are lifesavers for so many people. To look forward, you only have to look back. It was some of the greatest advances in science which are being abused by athletes to gain unfair athletic advantage. Well, as we move forward over the next decade, undoubtedly we're going to begin to see uh, gene therapy begin to emerge as a technology. And to be sure, and I know for a fact, that some of the researchers have been approached by athletic gurus to see if their athletes can be part of studies and so on and get access to gene doping, what we call gene doping technologies. Yet despite stories of coaches jumping the gun on gene therapy or our sports heroes stocking up on steroids, Wadler, who's been in the anti-doping field for more than 20 years, says doping probably isn't responsible for considerable improvement in Olympic times. And I have a fundamental belief that most athletes are clean athletes. The whole anti-doping initiative internationally, led by people like Donna Deverona, Johan Olaf Koss, and others, Sergei Bubka, people who are, wanted nothing more than a level playing field. It's the absolute minority, in my judgment, of elite athletes that are doping. They get all the headlines. Look what's happening with A-Rod. But for every one of those headlines, there's all those headlines of those people who did not cheat, who perform at the highest level. So they're the, sort of the invisible uh, in the field of of doping. My feeling is most people are in that latter category. They're drug-free and they want to participate in drug-free sport. They never want to be put in the position of having to even to think about whether they need to take the various drugs and use various methods to be competitive. So is it possible we're just getting better at becoming faster? Extra light running shoes and super streamlined swimsuits can make us tenths of a second faster. New science can help coaches tweak training schedules and shape the ultimate athlete. Drugs may or may not be responsible for our steady stream of new world records, but new technologies like gene therapy might breed an entirely new generation of super athletes.
Is there a limit to human performance? Not in the near future, it seems. Regardless, the girls on this local basketball team are using something no super sneaker nor vitamin supplement can offer. Lots of practice. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? There are a couple ways you can show your support. First, you can become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by going online at www.nias.org. Second, get your name and advertising in a Science in the City podcast by sponsoring one. For more information, email Adrian Burke at A-B-U-R-K-E at N-Y-A-S.org. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. Please send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to check us out online, scienceinthecity.org. See you next week.